0: We're live on Facebook. Okay. right off the bat, um, I got a call this morning from I don't know where you're from. I believe his name was Mike. Uh, Is that correct, Gloria? You remember? And he wanted to know if we were okay because um, we have stopped posting on YouTube. Uh, I don't know how to reach you folks. I'll do my best here. I hope you find us somewhere. But uh, we're moving to Subsplash. Is that correct? I have that right. And you, ex- yeah. it's you- the same Website uh, but it's uh, to new platform. We a video on there and our there, so it'll, it'll, it'll work this Okay. So what's happening is that we're trying to consolidate at cliffside.org instead of being all over the place, where no one really is able to tell where we are, including us. We'll be going to Subsplash as a as a system, right? But it'll be cliffside.org, and then Subsplash will be the mechanism that allows us to have videos. And oh, and there's an application, whatever that means. Oh, it's a phone application. So Dave has been working on this, and you expect it to launch about when? Hopefully, the end of next week. The end of next week. So we think by the. uh, Maybe the seventeenth lecture be on there, maybe. Uh, yes. Sir. Okay. Well, we're hoping for that, and let's see if that'll uh, take care of us soon. Uh, we do not have caller ID on the office phone, so we're not able to figure out some of you folks who call us if you don't leave a number. We're not able to find you. Okay. There. So here we are today's special Mother's Day sermon. I like to do something special for Mother's Day. As everyone knows, I concentrate on it. I work up an entire Mother's Day theme, and that's what I have done today, Are not. And it is May the 10th, 2020, lecture discussion number 102, I hope, on the book of Joel Daniel, Revelation Ecclesiastes. I'm combining them as one book for obvious reasons. I think, at least I think they're obvious. Okay, keeping with the current recent format of throwing Uh, seemingly uncoupled uh, subjects up into the air, uh, hoping that they land on the dry erase board in some kind of list, because list makers are going to list, and that's what I do most of the time. Um, As an aside here, and I I should make this clear, as an aside does not count as a by the way, though it should. It's my way of not saying by the way. So instead, I say, as an aside, but I have been told that I need to start counting it. So there you go. If you can launch something into the air, it stands logically that an object can be cast down into the air. So I can go up into the air and I can come down into the air. And obviously it is an issue of relative observational positioning where I am. Uh, It's a frame of reference, it's locality, all of those wonderful topics that cure insomnia for the vast Internet audience and for the analog. I'm well known for curing insomnia, as you know. So uh, what I'm talking about here is observational impact. And that is a fundamental, perhaps it is the foundation of, I think it is the foundation of quantum physics, which is why I am drawn to it. Captured might be a more appropriate word, um, captured by the quantum theory, the the mechanism, if you will, of the function of the smallest of the creation, the particles. And to me, it's obvious that there, and I've always said this, that there's an absolute observation or an absolute observer of all of matter, of all of creation, of all of the universe, all of space, and there's an infinite consciousness. And to me, again, that's obvious. And I submit that quantum theory has made this certain. It's rendered all contrapositions null or mute. Max Planck, who I cannot quote often enough, he's the father of quantum physics. And he said this, all matter originates and exists only by virtue of a force. And we must assume... Behind this force, the existence of a conscience, conscious and intelligent mind. This mind is the matrix of all matter. Now, he said that in the early 1900s. And, and that is why John 1, 1 through 4. What he did is validate John 1, 1 through 4 and Colossians one fifteen through 17. Let me put those on the board. John 1, 1 through 4 and Colossians 15. Double check, make sure I've got this right. No, I don't have it right. I do. I just left out the chapter. Colossians one fifteen through 17. Those verses absolutely... Make it unequivocal that there is an absolute consciousness through all, through whom all things were made. And there was nothing that was made that was made except through Him. And that Him in these both cases is Christ. All things, all matter, were made through Christ. Without Christ, nothing was made that was made. I can't repeat that enough. In Christ, all things, all matter, all time, everything consists in in him. He is the force, the virtue of a force that Max Planck referred to. Behind the force is the existence of a conscious and intelligent mind. Christ is that mind. He's the force. Or he provides the force. My favorite Max Planck statement, frankly... And I don't know Frank or Frank Lee. I assume that's a smaller Frank. Frank Ean is some kind of postage, I believe. My favorite Max Planck statement, something that I believe everybody, all parents, should have framed and prominently placed in their homes. Max Planck said this as well. He said many things, but these are the two that I... Gravitate towards. Get it? Gravit? Never mind. I regard consciousness, Max Planck said, as fundamental. I regard matter as a derivative from that consciousness. We cannot get beyond consciousness. Everything that we talk about, everything that we regard as existing, postulates consciousness. Again, I think every child should know those two quotes. And know John 1, 1 through 1-4, and Colossians 1, 15-17. Those quotes and those verses, the church should bombard the world with that. Long ago, who can remember? I can't remember. I don't know how long ago. I began to include interferometry into the lectures, the double-slit experiment. And maybe some of you remember it or watched that lecture. I don't know where it is. I hope it's on... Uh, sermon audio, it may not be, is it? Do you know the double slit interferometry? Did that ever make it to the cut? Okay, they're on sermon audio, we think, we hope. But that's where photons create a wave interference pattern. Uh, this is the, the, the basis, if you will, of wave particle dualism, the duality of the entire created, of all created matter. There is a duality to it, and that includes human beings. We have a duality. This will take you to superposed states or superposition. This is entanglement. It's the mystery of the microscopic or the subatomic world. And, it, and, it, and the subatomic world has an independence from the macroscopic world that we assume to be reality. We think the reality is the subatomic. I'm sorry, is the macroscopic. And we call it reality when in fact it is, it is completely the opposite of the subatomic, the microscopic. And how do we determine Reality. We have a poor definition of reality as human beings. The quantum physics reality does not reconcile with the classical Newtonian physics that we experience. That is a fact. They are unreconcilable and I don't think they'll ever be reconciled why don't I think they'll ever be reconciled there is a in physics there's this this desire to have a theory for everything and I think there's not no possibility they'll come up with a theory for everything because everything comes from the force or the mind or the consciousness or the intelligence the theory for everything is an intelligence and he has made these two worlds the macroscopic and the microscopic the subatomic to be absolutely in conflict Nothing that classical Newtonian physics uh, has to say corresponds, is reconcilable to the quantum world. The classic system or the classic reality has this apparent seeming observational certainty. In other words, I throw this and it hits somebody, I can figure out velocity, I can figure out trajectory, I can figure out uh, force, the mass. And there's some there's a seeming certainty to it. Notice how apparent how I say that. But the quantum does not have that. It has uncertainty. The, one of the foundational elements is the uncertainty. Quantum physics, uh, you'll hear this said a lot, occurs in secret. It's called informational secrecy. And that is also called the foremost mystery of quantum physics, is secrecy. There is a secret element to quantum physics. And, and, and knowing this to be true, that reveals Matthew 6, six. The first thing I saw when I recognized years and years ago that quantum physics occurs in secret, informational secrecy, I immediately went to Matthew 6.6, 6, where Christ says, But you, when you pray... He's talking about, don't pray like a Pharisee. A Pharisee stands on the street corner and screams how holy and pious he is. Do not be him or her. That's classic narcissism. But you, when you pray, go into your room. This is Matthew 6.6. 6. And when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So not only is quantum physics the subatomic world in secret, but God declares himself to be in secret. That's probably a complete accident. That he made a world that depends on secrecy, or he made a system that depends on secrecy, observational secrecy. And he describes himself as invisible and in secret. Christ is the visible, or the invisible made visible notice what, how that is all formatted. But you, you put, pray, your room, you shut, your door, your father who is in secret, your father who sees in secret will reward you. There's a whole bunch of yous there. For today, instead of emphasizing you, I have decided to emphasize secret. I hope some of you recognize, shut your door. Now you're wandering around the Bible looking for doors that were shut. And it takes you to Noah's Ark, right? The Ark of Noah. The point being, already, yea, a yeah, point, already, there is secrecy. God is in secret. He is in secrecy, in the secret. He sees all the secrecy in the quantum world because he has to. Every, all matter comes from a conscious mind. The quantum world is the underpinnings of all of his creation. And he is the mind beyond which no one can circumnavigate, to reword Max Planck. In other words, he thought it. He conceived it. And then he put it into place. How quickly he's able to do things like that. The thought and the creation is we have no idea. It is not uncommon, again, to hear that quantum mechanics occurs in secret. Just get that into your mind today. If that's all I get today, I'll be happy if you connect that to Matthew 6.6 and see this relationship between what we have discovered, human mind has discovered, human scientific thought has discovered, the secrecy in quantum mechanics. And we know that, of course, God declares that in Matthew 6.6. So again you're going to hear that a lot you're going to read it a lot as you begin to study these kinds of things but you also hear in concert with that that mathematics is an imagined world which is why I am fascinated by mathematics uh, people say why aren't you a very good mathematician i'm not as good as i would wish to have been i'm not as good as i had hoped to be but i'm nonetheless fascinated by the fact that mathematics is imagination it is not physical Quantum physics is attached to secrecy and mathematics is attached to imagination. And that that positioning is fascinating to me. Imagination is obviously consciousness. If I imagine something, that's consciousness. It's an imaginary world. There's no physical reality. There's no possibility of imagining anything apart from consciousness. I have to have consciousness to imagine something. So whoever imagined, whoever conceived mathematics describes himself as being in secret. And that's why you pray to him in secret, because prayer is a mental process. It is a spiritual process. It has nothing to do with physicality. People will go into a a spiritual process, a metaphysical, if you will, process, a non-physical process, and they'll pray for a car. And I don't think that that's advisable. It never worked for me yet there's still time but I just notice the process don't do something in front of others do something in secret because I am in secret and so I have this this imagination cannot be apart from consciousness well I'm going to make the case for secrecy secrecy is uh, similarly bonded to consciousness I can't have secrecy without consciousness Max Planck is perfectly, was, is perfectly correct. It is impossible to get past consciousness when you're looking at the physical reality, especially at the subatomic world, but also at the classical or the macroscopic world. So how is secrecy, Matthew 6, fastened to consciousness? Well, the reasoning behind the statement quantum physics occurs in secret is derived from the Copenhagen Interpretation. We have different schools of thought in physics. And the the predominant one, or the dominant one, if you will, is the Copenhagen interpretation. Essentially stated as clouds become particles. Let me write that on the board. Clouds become particles. What does that mean? Niels Bohr. And all that were around him concluded that photons, electrons, for example, exist in a cloud state uh, or a probability state. And their location and their direction is unknown. It's uncertain. You might recognize the uncertainty principle. And therefore it is in secret. Nobody knows. I have clouds of photons, clouds of electrons. You can pick clouds. I have clouds, particles. And they are in this probability state. And the path of the particle cannot be known for the particle to remain in uncertainty. In other words, everything is uncertain and so therefore you can't know its location or its direction. It's also called a probability wave state. This is why interferometry, if you go back and listen to that lecture. And you will discover descriptions, the more you delve into this, such as uh, uh, electron cloud probability patterns. And the attaching of waves of probability to superposition. So what does that have to do with secrecy, this subatomic behavior? Are they right that there are clouds of photons that we cannot know essentially what they're doing, where they're going? And they eventually become particles. How do they become particles? Let me try to explain it this way. If there is observational detection... In other words, if the secrecy is terminated by an observer, the probability wave, the cloud, immediately collapses. So in other words, observation, and we've covered this before, I know. So where is he going? Observation collapses the clouds into particles. Therefore, secrecy is required, can't have any observation. For the quantum world to operate, there has to be secrecy. The quantum world functions on secrecy. But again, to repeat Max Planck here, reality is dependent on consciousness. There is no possibility of reality apart from observation. And I know that I say, whenever I say possibility or probabilities, I have this phrase I use, no zero probabilities. We covered that a while back in quantum tunneling. So I recognize that I'm, I'm appearing to, in, to violate that principle. And, I, and that's true. I am violating that principle. If consciousness is exposed to the probability wave, or the interferometry, or the, the, a probability wave interference pattern, that's where interferometry comes from, the study of an interference problem from a double-slit slit experiment. As soon as consciousness exposes itself to the clouds, the clouds become particles. The wave pattern ends. Now, to be fair to the atheists, uh, I know you're going to say, why? I'm trying to be fair. They argue that observational detection does not require consciousness. You'll see it all over the Internet. They are absolutely positive of it. it can, they say it can be either an isolated mechanical system and or an interaction with other probability clouds or particles. The latter is their way of saying that the universe records everything. Uh, it records everything, whether it knows it or not. But there is some kind of evidence of, of all things in the universe. Uh, I, and that's a hypothesis that I agree with, actually. It's just that I combine the latter with the former. What I mean by that is I'm going to bring consciousness into this situation. And therefore, uh, I agree that everything is recorded. That someone must record everything for this world to function. That's where I'm heading. Somebody has to see it all, or the world can't function. A mechanical detection device, how do I get a mechanical detection device? What do I do? Somebody has to conceive it. So I have conception. It's it's conceived by an intelligent agency. And, and then if, some, if I inspect the mechanical detection device, whether it's a computer or it's some kind of uh, meter or whatever it might be, if I inspect it and look at what it has recorded, then what have I done? I've observed it. So I have observation. So the cloud became particles. I lost the uncertainty. There is no such thing as an isolated mechanical observation. The, con- the conception of it eliminated the isolation. As soon as I conceive it, I've eliminated it being an independent observational item. As did the inspection of the results of the of the detector, whatever the detector might be. The intelligent agent is always consciousness. Again, consciousness prevails, wins, if you will. You can't get beyond it. That's what Max Planck was trying to say. You can come up with some kind of observational system that you believe is not uh, the result of consciousness, but consciousness will have, in fact, conceived it and and recorded what it did. There's no possibility you can eliminate that again. No zero probability. So if consciousness prevails, infinity prevails. Because an infinite, an infinite, I'm sorry, an in, infinite consciousness will subdue probability, as we discussed with quantum tunneling a while back. In other words, infinity applied to probability affects the certainty. So if I have infinity applied to uncertainty, uh, this is this no zero probabilities and infinity discussion that I think is critically important to the church. I know the church does not agree with me. They're listening to me now. Everyone is asleep, including the people here. Sometimes me. Infinity applied to probability affects certainty. And at the will of the infinite consciousness, note how I said that. If he so wills, he can, being infinite, suspend uncertainty. Now, the question becomes, does he suspend uncertainty? Being infinite. But I want you to, again, see that disclaimer. As he so wills. And just as that, and same as that, omniscience and omnipresence, which is what? It's absolute observational recording of everything. The quantum physicists have said that there is absolute observation of everything. And I say, yes, you're right. Who is it? Absolute uh, Omniscience and omnipresent is absolute recording and absolute observation. And it therefore would collapse all clouds into particles. And it is a person who knows and records all things. John twenty-one seventeen. In other words, he is in secret. He is the secrecy. And he tells us so. It is him. It is his consciousness, his mind, from which all consciousness, all minds flow. They emanate from him. Everything that it has consciousness comes from consciousness. consciousness. Consciousness, I can't even say it. Consciousness must come from consciousness. And the quantum properties at the subatomic level testify of an infinite mind. That's my point. Yea, a point. And that is why I love. Love is, uh, love people and use things, not the other way around. But I like a lot the theories that quantum physics has developed because they feather into the Bible and they absolutely declare what he says to be true. And they know it. And they certainly knew it when Max Planck was running things. Unfortunately, Max is not able to make YouTube videos. But they know it. We have learned, for example, that uh, recently this is a political condition I recognize, but it does not amaze me. It does not astonish me. It actually validates my opinion of humanity in the political or the media class. People have gone on the media knowing that they were lying, thinking they would never be caught for lying or exposed for lying and have lied hundreds and hundreds of times. Uh, that is not astonishing, but it is and irrationality. I assume I'm going to be caught every time. Why do I assume that? Because somebody observes and records every single thing, and I know it. So that tells you the spiritual mindset of, of congenital lying. They, they cannot possibly believe that there is a quantum absolute observer or consciousness, an infinite consciousness. They cannot believe it. They don't believe it. Consciousness must come from consciousness and will must come from someone who has will. Existence comes from, from existence, life from life, eternity from eternity. I've said these things hundreds of times. But not enough. For the finite to achieve eternity. I'm finite, you're finite. We are created. We are not we have no infinity. How do we get eternity then? For the finite to achieve eternity, it must be given from the infinite. There's no way that you can be given eternity. Are we promised eternity in Scripture? We absolutely are. What does that say about God? He must have eternity. He must be infinite. As soon as I figure out he's infinite, then I know he's an infinite observer. I know that he is an uh, an infinite consciousness. And that is why we did twenty-one one of Revelation and. Through 22.17 last week. Because he is giving us eternity. That is not the same as infinity. There's a difference. Time is created. Conceived in his mind. And instituted in ours. Okay? That's how we start today. Moving along. Moving back might be more accurate. Revelation 21 Chapters 21-22 is the conclusion to Genesis 1 3. I'm going to get that out of the way right fast. Revelation 21, 22 is the new city of Jerusalem. If you weren't here for last week, I would encourage you to read it. We're going to read some of it now. It is the great city, the holy city that descends out of heaven from God. Revelation 21, 9 through 14. So we're going to read that. Make sure I'm there. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, as opposed to the not holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like the most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also she had great, had a great and high wall with twelve gates and the twelve angels at the gates and, and twelve angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now, the, the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. <coughs> Excuse me. Hopefully, some of you listening will remember last Sunday, lecture number 101, May the 3rd. Because I can't read that again today, but I'll reference it here. The new city of Jerusalem has the Lamb himself. The Lamb of God, that's Jesus Christ, is the light of this city. There is no sun, there is no moon. The gates of the city are forever open. There's a high wall, but open gates. How long would it take my lab, my two labs, to find the open gate? They would, they would find them instantly, and be out the gates. So, what's the point of the high wall? Why does it have high wall and open gates? Why does it have any walls? The gates are forever open. The pure river of water of life is there. The tree of life is over the river. The mark of eternity is on the foreheads. That's the mark of the Lamb that denotes eternal life. That is on the foreheads of everyone who is in the city. Eternal life as God defines eternal life. They shall reign forever and ever. Revelation 22.5 So that helps us now. We read the first part of the New Jerusalem with the gates and the walls and the rest of that. Now we're going to go back to Daniel 12. Because Revelation is to Genesis as Joel and Daniel are to Revelation. So let me find this. Daniel person. I got told last week by somebody that was here that I I throw a lot of information out. Yes, I do. I throw a lot more information out now that we don't have any children downstairs, wondering when he's going to shut up. Please make him shut up, they say, every Sunday. Uh, but now they're not here. So I get to do whatever I want. <coughs> Daniel 12, 1 through 9. At that time, Michael shall stand up. So obviously the first thing we should want to know is what time is this? The great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. Who's the your in this sentence? And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. What nation is he talking to? Who is he talking to? Even to that time, there's that time again. And at that time, your people, who's the your, the pronoun in that sentence, shall be delivered. What does delivered mean? Everyone who is found written in the book. What book? And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Oh, how many is many? Some of them to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting abhorrence. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one on this riverbank and one on the other riverbank. Now remember, we have a tree in Revelation 21:22, right? 22, actually, first, first chapter 22. And the tree of life spans this river. And here we have another river. I want to know, do all rivers the same river? Do they all fit together? Yeah, they do. And there stood two others, one on this riverbank and the other on that riverbank. And one said to the man clothed in linen, who's that? Who's the man clothed in linen? We have to go find him. Who was above the waters of the river. So I have one on this side, one on this side, and somebody above the waters of the river. One said to him, How long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Then I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever, that it shall be for a time, times, and a half a time. So I have times, time. And a half of a time, that's how long. How long is that? Time's time and a half a time. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished, although I heard I did not understand. Then I said, my Lord, that's a clue, huh? What shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. That takes you back to verse 2. Some to everlasting life, some to the shame and everlasting abhorrence. Okay, we have read this before. This being the standing up of the archangel Michael, the, the time of trouble. Uh, this is ultimately the 75-day interval, though I've kind of hidden that for now. Some will call this the five stages of the first resurrection. And they will say that Daniel 12:2, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting abhorrence, is either the fourth stage or the, or the fifth stage. Some say five, some say four, some say three. Theologians... Fight and write books over this. Some theologians count differently. The others, others do not count to five, as some count to five. So I'll get ready for that. And some who count five count seven, and others count five by counting five and not seven. I'm sure that made sense to no one. And the dispute is at Revelation 11 and Revelation 19:20. That's where it starts to fall apart. That is where they do their battle. The issue arises here at Daniel 12, two, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting abhorrence, and is, in, as, and is addressed at 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23. So I have a New Testament compliment, if you will. So you want to put those two together. Put Daniel twelve two. With 1st Corinthians 15:20 20 through 23. Right here is an opportunity. I'm going to take an opportunity because I got an interesting uh, uh, letter the other day. Here's an opportunity to insert the unceasing complementary characteristics or aspects or system of the Old and New Testament. And what I mean by that, there's this constant referral back and forth. I put my glasses on. I broke my glasses. The real glasses, I broke them. I'm still weeping over those glasses because I could spray them with paint and I could clean them off. These are plastic lenses. Or they have a protective film, they say, which is completely meaningless to somebody like me. And if I get lacquer thinner on them, well, they don't do so well. Or oil-based paints. Death death Thane, for example, which is what we're doing. Let me go back. I have, there's, this is where I'm going to insert this system that the Bible has. This constant referral that, that goes back and forth. It goes up and down uh, between the New Testament and the Old Testament. They are two that are one. The Old Testament and the New Testament are one book. Uh, they're two bodies that are one flesh. I hope that rings true to somebody somewhere because of the two birds and the two mules where we have been, and the two bags of dirt, two bodies that are one flesh, the two witnesses, all of that, and all that that is two, this interaction, this interconnection, along with the relentless declaration that Jesus Christ is God and and the likewise defense of the goodness of God that is all in scriptures that 's the genesis three where god 's goodness was put on i don 't want to call it trial, but he was accused of being evil at Genesis three with uh, Satan and the woman and he was accused of being evil in the satanic um, uh, fall of ezekiel uh, twenty eight sixteen the abundance of your traffic god 's goodness was attacked there, and the bible is a defense of the goodness of God, along with the relentless declaration that Jesus Christ is God Himself in the flesh. John one three, Colossians one15 through seventeen, John one one through four, John one three, same thing. Genesis one twenty six, Deuteronomy six four, Genesis three twenty two, tells us that Christ is one of the Elohim. He is a, he, the, the the us of God, if you will. Genesis three twenty two, 1.26. Genesis 6, 4, in case people are trying to write it down. First John 5 6 through 8 declares Christ to be the Word Himself. So does John 1 1 through 4. Scripture always does this. It is the defining evidence that Scripture is Scripture. People ask me, how can you know that the Bible is the inspired word of God? Because the Bible does this. It interconnects and it testifies of Christ. Christ is on every page, and it, uh, it, it declares him to be God, and it declares the goodness of God, the Elohim, the us. And scripture will always do those three things. So if it doesn't do those three things, then it is not scripture. And I have been asked recently to review a paper that proposes that the Apostle Paul is not an inspired writer, and therefore... All the Pauline epistles should be removed from the canon immediately. And I was given that paper here a few days ago. And that's not new. This has been going on for a long time. They've been trying to get Paul out of the Bible. And you have to ask, why do they want Paul out of the Bible? Well, it's because they don't like what he says. Because he says something that really bothers them. And they they absolutely despise him for that. And they know that there are churches like Cliffside that say, no. Ah, Paul's inspired, and that's true. I think I can prove it's true. Within the, the person that wrote this, again, it's not a new concept. And within the first few pages that I was reading, it's a 107 page monograph. And obviously, I don't have time to read all of it. And I will, I'll work my way through it. I know all the arguments, just in case there's something different in it. I doubt that there is. There, They've been the same for my whole life. I know what the motivation is and I know what the denomination is that they flow from or they come out of the origin of these. But this particular author makes a statement that immediately diminishes the absolute infinite Godhood of Christ. So I know something right off the bat. I don't remember what page he did it on, but he, he exposes a complete misunderstanding of Matthew 4, Mark 1, Luke 4, and Exodus 17, 1 through 7. That is the, te- the testing of Christ. Thank you. Not the temptation of Christ, but the testing of Christ. Testing to prove that he is, in fact, God. And he, of course, demonstrates that at Mark 1. I'm sorry, Matthew 4, Luke 4, and Mark 1, and Exodus seventeen one through 7. And this particular author had no idea. So, right off the bat, I recognize this uh, inability to see the relentless declaration that Jesus is God. In other words, the author of the paper does something that is the opposite of what what Paul says right here. And what John says right here. John and Paul absolutely agree. And Paul also declares it that... uh, It it, it goes. Colossians one fifteen through seventeen connects to Acts nine twenty through twenty two and Proverbs thirty verse uh, verse four. Paul's conversion, the Damascus Road, Acts nine one through nine. What did he see? He was blinded by it. What was it? He saw something and he heard something. He it was the shekinah glory, and he heard the voice from the light of life. Again, let me go back. The intention of destroying Paul and discrediting Paul is that Paul says over and over again, Romans 1, 17, Romans 2, 9 through 12, Romans 4, 3 through 4, that what? He says salvation is given. It is by grace and grace alone. And works is, is empty and it is a condemnation. The people that want to get the Pauline epistles out want salvation by works. They want the pharisaical system. They want you to earn their way. And they want gatekeepers to determine if you have earned your way. The last thing they want is it to be a belief system or a prayer in secret system, Matthew 6. six. They don't want a prayer in secret system. They want some kind of test. And that's why they think Christ is is being tempted. They don't understand. They don't see Exodus 17one through 7. Again, the concept is simple. If salvation is by works, then none are saved, because none can earn it. There is no infinity, which is why I keep pounding on infinity. If you have infinity, then the blood is infinite. There's no possibility I can, I can, as a finite being, accomplish infinity. There's nothing I can do. It's hopeless if it's by works. And if, if it is by works... Then none are saved because none of us would ever be saved if that was the system. Because we'd all fail. We'd all fall short. None is righteous. No, not one. Paul and David agree. Notice the complementary aspect of that. The interconnection. Because if none are saved, then God lies about his salvation. If God lies, then what is he? He's evil. There is no existence. We're all automatons back. We go into that swirling mess. That is why they want to destroy the Pauline epistles. In order to elevate salvation by a system that they have decided is the one. They have rejected what Paul writes. And again, he saw the Shekinah glory. And he heard the voice from... And the Shekinah glory is the light of life. That's John 8, 12, Genesis 1, 3. He heard the word... The voice of the Word he heard. The Word is a person. He heard the voice of the Word. Revelation twenty-one twenty-three. And and he, we have what's called the blindness of Saul. He's blinded. And whenever I say Saul, then I have to say, well, I can say Paul Saul. As Paul becomes Saul, he has a name change. Jacob is changed to Israel. So immediately I have a connection, an Old Testament connection to a New Testament event, right? I have Jacob Israel. Those two So again I have this declaration of the deity of Christ right here and here. I have this relentless declaration that Christ is God from the Pauline epistles. I have the defense of the goodness of Christ everywhere in those epistles. And I have interconnectivity to the Old Testament everywhere in the Pauline epistles. Paul heard the the word, the voice of the word of God. That's Genesis 1 3, that's 1 John 5, 6 through 8, that's John 1, 1 through 4, that's Revelation one12 through 17, that's Matthew 17, 11. Let me tell you what those are really fast. First John five, six through eight says, The Word, the Spirit, and the Father are one. John 1, 1 1-4 says nothing was made except through Christ, declaration of deity. Genesis 1, 3 is the light of life, that's John 8, 12. Christ is the light of life, that's the Shekinah glory. Matthew 17, 1-11 is when he opens up his self and he shows Peter, James, and John that he is the light of life. That's the transfiguration. That's Daniel 7, 9-10 where he's the ancient of days. Revelation 1, 12-17 where he is the ancient of days. Daniel 10, 4-9 where he is the ancient of days. Declared by such interconnectivity between Daniel and Revelation. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15, 40 through 54, which is commentary on Genesis 2, 7. The first Adam and the last Adam. Where the first Adam breathes into the, I'm sorry, the the last Adam breathes the spirit of of life, the breath of the spirit of life into the first Adam. That's Genesis chapter 3, connects to Revelation chapter 3. Adam is a type of Christ. Adam is not deceived. Both of those statements were written by who? That's 1 Timothy 2.14 and 15 and Romans 5.14. Genesis 3. Who wrote those statements? Not Genesis 3. Paul did through the Holy Spirit. He connects them to Genesis 3. I can go on and on and on. The writings of Paul gloriously proclaim the truth of the infinite deity of Jesus Christ and reach back and up and down and through the entire Old Testament, forward to Revelation, backward to Genesis, touching uncountable scriptures. That is why it is in the Bible. Now, did the people who who put it in the Bible, did they not necessarily know all of that? Probably not. That's what's really cool. Everything they put in the Bible has those three characteristics and more. They probably didn't know it. They just said, this was done by a prophet, let's put it in here. They didn't realize that the book was two parts, one flesh. Say that again. Two mules, two bags of dirt, one body. Paul is Saul, Saul is Saul. I have two Sauls. Both men are inseparably linked Saul and Moses, Paul and Moses are likewise, both experienced the light of life. One in Acts 9, uh, or Acts uh, yeah, uh, 9, and the other in Exodus 3. The I am that I am spoke to Moses. That means the I am that I am spoke to Paul. It was Paul. Just listen to this. Paul is Saul, Saul is Paul. There's two Sauls, the men are inseparable. Again, both of them saw the light of life. They heard the I am that I am voice. And the point of all of that, yea, another point. Scripture connects with Scripture. Scripture announces and reveals the truth of Jesus Christ, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, his omnibenevolence. And it was given to Paul that the third mystery. Look at what Paul got. He got the third mystery, Ephesians 3, 3 through 6. That was given to him. None of the Old Testament prophets, but that was given to Paul. That connects him to every single Old Testament prophet, because he's the one, he's the prophet that got that. The Holy Spirit, through Paul, revealed the mystery of the Incarnation. That's another mystery that he got. The greatest of all mysteries, 1 Timothy 3.16. It's the first of the eleven mysteries. Who got it? Paul got it. How come the Old Testament? Isaiah made a good run at it. But Paul got the mystery of the incarnation. He also got the, in addition to the third mystery, he got the first and the second mystery. Colossians one twenty six through twenty seven. He also got the sixth mystery. First Corinthians fifteen fifty one. First Thessalonians four sixteen through seventeen. Revelation three seven. That is the abduction of the bride. Paul got that. They got the Hebrew betrothal ceremony in the Old Testament. Paul got the abduction of the bride. It's also in Matthew twenty five. How did he get it? Did he just figure it out on his own? How come he's the only one that ever figured it out? He also got the seventh mystery, 11, uh, Romans eleven twenty-five, 25, and the eighth, that's the son of perdition, the lie, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, 2, 8 through 11, Genesis three fifteen. Paul got six of the eleven mysteries. which extend, as they should, in all directions throughout all of the Bible, announcing the goodness of God, Genesis chapters 1 through 3, refuting the lie of Satan, Matthew 4, Luke 4, Mark 1, Exodus 17, 1 through 7, declaring the deity of Christ, John 1, 1 through 4, Colossians 15 through 17, Revelations chapters 1 through 3. Okay, now where are we? Okay, by we, I mean me. That was a rant. don't mean it to be a rant, but I'm frustrated by people who try to destroy grace-based salvation. They want to replace it with works-based salvation. Read Romans 4. Daniel 12, 1 through 9. The time of Michael standing up. The time of the sons of Daniel's people. A time of trouble. Jeremiah 30, verse 7. Revelation 3, verse 7. Jeremiah 30, verse 7. Revelation 3, verse 7. Okay? Those connect. You'll figure out how. And that time... Daniel's people, at that time, Daniel's people shall be delivered. That's what it says. At that time, Daniel, your people shall be delivered. I added Daniel because he's the pronoun. Your people will be delivered. Now, how does God, how does he define delivered? God defines delivered. And that clearly is salvation. Resurrection to life as opposed to resurrection to death. That's Daniel 12. 2. As opposed to... Um, According to how God defines life and death, because He defines that, and we see that demonstrated: some to everlasting life, some to everlasting abhorrence, shame, and everlasting abhorrence. That's life and death as He defines it. Note that it it isn't uh, life and abhorrence are eternal; they're both everlasting. So this is an issue of existence. Existence is not the question. The question is, is do you have everlasting life as Christ defines life, or do you have everlasting abhorrence as he defines that? Destination is the question. Destiny is the question, not existence. And Michael is going to stand up. Obviously, he's going to stand up at this time to do what? What's he going to do? He's a commander of an angelic army. When he stands up, who else stands up? The entire army stands up. Why do they stand up? They're about to fight. He's going to fight in the tribulation, the time of trouble. Who's he going to fight for? Daniel's people. Israel. It's obvious to protect Israel during the time of trouble, the tribulation. Michael and his army are going to fight. And it is through his fighting, because of his fighting and that army, the standing up of him and his army, that Israel cannot be destroyed. There is no possibility. In this case, no possibility probabilities, there is a zero probability that Israel will be destroyed. Israel will not be destroyed, cannot be destroyed. Michael is part of that process. That is another reason why, hi, uh, Valjo and Susie. Um, that is why Michael fights over the body of Moses. He proves something to Moses there. Obviously, he got the body of Moses from Satan and he proves something I can get the body of Moses I can also protect Israel from you you cannot destroy them so Satan knows that he cannot destroy Israel Moses if there's anybody in history of the Bible that is a uh, that is a symbol of the nation of Israel you would have to say that it is Moses and Aaron both of their bodies We're unaccounted for until we find out that Moses has got his back. Matthew 17, right? Anyway, those of you who think I never answer questions, apparently I do. Notice the word apparently as the caveat. Here's more information. We need more information because we have to say, how many who awake to everlasting life are there at Daniel twelve two? Who are they? Well, they're obviously Jews. So the solution that is at that question, the solution that is given at Daniel 12, 11 through 13. I didn't read 11 through 13. Did you notice? I hope so. Because 11 through 13 is math. Math is our friends. It's imaginary. 11 through 13. Can't read it. Completely out of time. It says that there is a 75-day interval. Covered this many times. Interval. And it's 75 days. It's 75 days because 1260 is equal to three and a half years. Twelve hundred and sixty days is equal to three and a half years as the Hebrews count time. Three hundred sixty days to a year. And the twelve hundred and sixty days is derived from Daniel twelve seven. That is the times the time and half a time. So that's three and a half times. That's where we get the three and a half from. That's where we get the three and a half years. Time, time, and half a time is three and a half times, uh, three and a half years. 1260 divided by 360 is equal to what? Three and a half. Duh. And 1260 divided by three and a half is equal to 360. Duh. 1260 divided by three and a half, I'm sorry, 360 is the Hebrew day in years, again, to repeat that. And uh, a tribulation, then, is seven years. Seven years is 2,550 days, 2,500, oops, I'm sorry, 2,520 days. That is seven years. Tribulation is two three-and-a-half-year periods, thus seven years. Twenty five hundred and twenty divided by twelve hundred and sixty is two. Duh. No, no. Twelve hundred and sixty. Almost screwed up. Two tells me that I have two three and a half year periods of a seven year tribulation. Day math. More information is given to Daniel twelve eleven. An additional thirty days is added to Daniel twelve eleven. And we ended up with twelve hundred and ninety days. Because at thirty days, twelve sixty plus thirty is twelve ninety. Duh. So we had we have we have to add 30 days to the second three and a half years and get 1290. ninety. 12, Daniel 12, 12, another 45 days is added to the 1290. That makes 1335 days or 75 days more than 1260. That's why we have a 75 day interval. Now what happens in the 75 day interval? It's called the blessing of the 1335th day. What happens in the in the seventy five day interval? Many things happen in the seventy five day interval. Included in those things is Daniel twelve two. Actually one half of Daniel twelve two. It says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. So the ones that awake, they awaken in the seventy five day interval. They are the people of Daniel. And some to eternal life or everlasting life. It seems like everyone awakes, but that's not what it says. I'll get to that in a minute. They are the sum to everlasting life part that are in the 75 day interval. Revelation 25 through 6 describes this as the first resurrection. So I have a first resurrection. So if I got a first resurrection, what's obvious? I must have a second or a third or a fourth or a fifth. I got more than this is the first of the resurrections. And it's happening in this 75 day interval. But where does it start? Does it start in a 75 day interval, the first resurrection? How long is the duration of the first resurrection is my question. And obviously, and I should read it, but I don't have time. Revelation 25 through 6 says the first resurrection has the blessed and holy in it. Over which death has no power, they are the ones given everlasting life as opposed to those who choose everlasting abhorrence. So those are the people that are in the first resurrection are the ones are ones who get everlasting life. Now it gets complicated. So far it's been pretty easy. The apostle Paul is given understanding by the Holy Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23. And he explains Daniel 12.2 there. Oh, looky. He says there is an order to the first resurrection. Each of the resurrection in the first resurrection is assigned an order. Each one in his own order, 1 Corinthians 15.23. The New Testament complement of Daniel 12.2 is 1 Corinthians 15.20 through 23. Boom. They interconnect. An appalling epistle. They declare Christ is good. Just saying, there is truth to what God said. He will resurrect. Christ said, "I am the resurrection and the life," and Paul affirms it. Okay, so now expect there's a problem here. Expect to read many different differing views as to the order of the first resurrection. There's a bunch of disagreement. I mostly subscribe uh, to Arnold G. Fruchtenbaum's conclusions. Notice notice I said mostly. But be aware there's a significant disagreement with Mr. Fruchtenbaum, who I think got it mostly right. He's going to be mad at me for saying that, but uh, it's okay. He can't find me yet. Anyway, in 1523, Paul says order. But the word really translated order is referencing a military battle attacking progression. Waves! If you will. Waves. We love waves, especially probability waves. No, the answer is no. No one loves it. By we, it's only me. But what he's saying here is that the resurrection, the first resurrection is like waves of military. Think Zulu's. Think of World War I, if you will, where waves of men would go across the battlefield. See, he's going to have those kinds of thoughts in his mind as he writes this. And we know that Christ is the first fruit. He is the first wave, if you will. But then we got Matthew twenty-seven 52. That's got to be considered. That's the Old Testament saints that came out of the graves and went into the city of Jerusalem. What happened to them? Are they part of the first wave or did they die Again. What about Lazarus and Jonah? We know that Lazarus and Jonah both died a second time. So that happened to the Matthew twenty-seven fifty-two. What about Job's family? It's absolutely clear that Job's family was resurrected at the end of that. Did they die again? So they part of the first wave. Is only Christ in the first wave? So Christ is the first fruit. He's the first one across the battlefield. Does that make sense? Obviously, it makes sense. Think about all those other people while I try to speed up. The Bride of Christ, 1 Thessalonians 4:16 through 18. Oh, Paul wrote that. How did he know about the abduction of the Bride? The Bride of Christ is abducted, Revelation 4, 1. Those who died in belief, those who remain alive in belief, they come second. They're the second wave of the first resurrection. Now, some scholars apply Revelation 11:11, 11, 11, uh, and that is the two witnesses, and they come at three and a half days. They are they are they're resurrected after three and a half days. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. I have three and a halfs everywhere, and I'll present another possibility, actually actually two possibilities of what where they fit. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. Ten minutes? Okay, how much time do I have left to go? Children or not? Okay, but there's no children to worry about. The sum to everlasting life of Daniel twelve two are the third wave, in my opinion. They are resurrected during the 75-day interval. The church is abducted before the tribulation. Christ obviously crucified, resurrected himself before uh, the, the church age. Now, at the... Thirteen hundred and thirty-fifth day, or the seventy-five day interval, I have in this interval, I have this resurrection of those, the the sum to everlasting life of Daniel twelve two. And and again, the most accurate translation of Daniel twelve two is is this, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. I'm sorry, that is the that's what it says, mostly. The many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, that's Genesis two seven, Genesis three nineteen. I hope you recognize that. That is how it's mostly translated, but that is not the accurate translation. The most accurate is at that time many of your people, Daniel, shall be separated out from those who remain in the dust of the earth. And that again is a Genesis three nineteen, Genesis two seven. And that is absolutely similar to the sheep and goats, because he takes he takes some from some and he takes goats from sheep. He separates the sheep from the goats, the good from the evil. And that also, the sheep from the goats, that is the, that is the, uh, judging of the nations, Matthew 25, 31 through 34. That's also in the 75 day interval. Now the fourth wave would be the tribulation, uh, tribulational martyrs. And, and, uh, who would then complete the blessed and holy first resurrection. So I have a blessed and holy first resurrection that is completed. And it starts with Christ and then the bride and then Daniel 12 to the first part of it. And then the tribulational saints that are murdered in Revelation. That ends the first resurrection. Now, the tribulational saints also are in the 75 day interval. So in the 75 day interval, I have the Old Testament saints, the tribulational saints, and the sheep from the goats. Nation from nation. So you're going to ask, how about the millennial believers? Because there are millennial believers. There are also millennial unbelievers. How about the unbelievers? When do they? They're not in the first resurrection. The first resurrection is only for the saints. I say there's five total resurrections. Some people say seven. They had the Two witnesses and they add the son of perdition and the false prophet. And they get to seven. And we'll argue that next week. And I think I'm done.